Well, thanks for the invite first. It's good to be here. I think it's been about a year since I was on campus last time, so it's nice to be back. Thank you all for setting it up. When I originally uh, talked about coming out, uh, we sort of talked about two themes. One is uh, there was some general interest in our new center and what we're up to. And then as we talked more, uh, apparently this forum is usually more of a traditional research operation where we talk about uh, work we've been doing and research we've been doing. So I thought I'd sort of split the baby a little bit and talk just for a couple minutes about a little bit about our center and uh, mostly point you in the direction of how you can get some more information about our center if you're interested in the future. Um, we do have one of our colleagues uh, here, Rob Greenbaum, is actually uh, working on a project with our center. And uh, certainly there are lots of other opportunities. I, I hope to work uh, in the future with the Mershon Center in some capacity since I think we're working in some parallel areas. So anyway, let me talk a little bit about uh, the START Center and what we're up to, but the main talk is going to actually be uh, one of the first projects uh, that we're getting online from the center on aerial hijackings. Um, the mission of the center basically is, is taken from the RFP that we began with. We are trying to do basically with this, pre with this center what economists call low-hanging fruit. We're trying to find areas in the social and behavioral sciences where we thought there was important uh, advances that could be made in terms of understanding terrorism, either in a methodological sense or in a theoretical sense. Uh, in my home discipline of criminology, for example, it's amazing there's been relatively little work done on terrorism. But my thinking is that there are some important analogies in criminology, that there are some similarities between the way gangs operate, organized crime operates, the way violence happens, and so on. Similarly, we have a whole group of people who are experts in natural hazards. And again, as I think Katrina shows rather vividly, the way the government responds, the way the government uh, communicates, the way the government deals with natural hazards may have some analogies that will be useful for understanding terrorism. So these three parts of our mission statement all draw on this. Um, formation of terrorist groups, we have a working group organized around, run by Ari, Ari Kruglansky, a psychologist from the University of Maryland. Dynamics of Terrorist Groups is run by Clark McCauley, a psychologist from University of Pennsylvania. And finally, Social and Psychological Impacts of Terrorism is being run by a sociologist at the University of Colorado, Kathleen Tierney. And our main partners in this are Penn, Colorado, UCLA, the Monterey Institute of International Studies, University of South Carolina. And uh, we also are connected to a whole bunch of centers. Uh, our buzzword is we are a center of centers. We have connections to uh, you know, Center for Biosecurity, Hazards Research Lab, and a variety of other centers as well. The thing that's, I think, really good about this is it gives us access to quite a large network of expertise in, in the social and behavioral sciences through our connections to these centers. Uh, our location here in Maryland uh, is just, of course, part of the picture. We have affiliates pretty much throughout the United States. We're also doing work in uh, Italy and in Israel right now. So we are pretty fanned out across the U.S. in terms of our consortium members, about 25 uh, partners, basically, university partners. Uh, in terms of the way we're set up, I, the mission statement actually shows our basic setup. We've got a working group that deals with group formation and recruitment, a second working group on persistence and dynamics, and a third group on impact on society. And I just thought for the heck of it I'd bring uh, a list of our projects. If you're all interested in finding out more about our center, we've got a website that we're putting quite a bit of time and energy into, and it's simply start, S-T-A-R-T dot U-M-D dot E-D-U. And we're hoping eventually to put papers up on this website. Eventually, even data, I th we're hoping, will be made available on the website. But right now, you can see a list of our projects, all of our affiliates, uh, and what people are working on. Uh, this is our group, uh, group two projects. You can see Greenbaum there prominently in 2C. Uh, Rob's been working on economic impact of terrorist strikes in Italy, and uh, we hope later looking at the United States as well. And this is working group three. And I won't go into great detail. I'll be happy to talk more about this. And again, it's on our website um, if, if you're all interested. Uh, what I want to do is get into a little bit about you know the talk today. One of our projects is on this global terrorism database that I've been working on for the past about two and a half years now. 
And uh, I know Craig is an expert in this area, and we were getting a chance to talk a little bit, and I know he's been working in this area for a long time as well. I'm not going to, in fact, have time to talk a lot about the database today because I want to talk about a specific project that's coming out of the database. But like many of these open source databases, it has includes information on type of terrorist activity. We have an incident date. We have whether the U.S. was a target. We have whether it's domestic or international. Uh, we can geocode it down to the city level. Uh, we know the groups involved if they claim responsibility. We know what weapons are used and a variety of other uh, characteristics of the incident. These are all taken from open sources. Our database started as a project of the Pinkerton Global Intelligence Service, the old you know, Irish detective agency. And basically, there's a whole game in this area that I was unaware of until I got in, in the business. A lot of these companies, and Pinkerton was one of these, they essentially get information for, you know, Xerox is sending two people to Cameroon, and they want to know how dangerous it is. So they contract with Pinkerton to get information on terrorism, and then Pinkerton would also sell them other services. And Pinkerton, to collect these data, hired ex-Air Force intelligence guys. So the two guys that ran the Pinkerton data for the years that, uh, that we were able to get access to, which is 1970 to 1997, uh, both ex-Air Force intelligence guys, uh, one of whom we hired as a consultant, the other one is still alive living in Florida. And so they sort of were working in the government on intelligence, and then they got into the private sector working in intelligence as well. And there are a whole variety of these agencies. A lot of them actually have, have been stood up actually since 9-1-1 as well. Uh, the reason I got so interested in these data to begin with, uh, the global terrorism database that we have goes from 1970 to 1997. It's got about 67,400 incidents in it right now. Some of the other major ones I've got up here, the Iterate data, Tweed uh, is one of these private companies, the Department of State and so on. These numbers are getting a little out of date, but uh, it gives you the idea essentially that this database has a huge number of cases compared to most of the others. It also has a nice time range going for almost 30 years all the way back to 1970. Uh, so this is one of the initial attractions. Uh, I don't, won't have time. Uh, I'd be happy to talk more about the sort of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, Craig could probably write the book on this and probably has written the book on this. There are all sorts of problems using these event data, of course. Uh, also, I think some specific strengths of this particular version. Uh, one of the main strengths, and the reason it's so much bigger than a lot of the other databases of this type, is it includes domestic as well as international incidents. Most of the other terrorism databases until very recently have concentrated just on international incidents. And in general, domestic incidents outnumber international by about seven to one. Also, what I thought was intriguing about the Pinkerton data to begin with is there were only two data supervisors over the 30-year period in which it was collected, and the two actually worked closely together. So uh, we're not exactly sure what they're measuring, but at least they've been measuring it consistently over time. Uh, also, they used a fairly broad definition of terrorism. This was a bit of an accident. It turns out the military definition of terrorism is broader than the FBI, is also broader uh, than the State Department. And these guys were ex-military, and so they used the military definition, which I think was an advantage. Also, a big advantage is it includes attempts as well as completed strikes, which I think is one of the areas that uh, we have a lot of interest because we want to know what made that difference between an attempt and an actual completed strike. And finally, I think, uh, maybe somewhat ironically, the fact that it was collected by a private company gives it certain advantages. They were interested in erring on the side of inclusiveness. Uh, whereas, for example, the U.S. State Department has always had difficulty classifying things like, you know, whether the Contras were really a terrorist group or not. The Pinkerton organization did not have that same kind of uh, difficulty. Of course, there are lots of, def of, ch of challenges as well. Uh, those of you who are in interested in this area know that there are whole conferences conducted on what the definition of terrorism is. And if we have time to talk a little bit about it, I think there's some interesting insights. One of the insights that I've come up with is that it's much easier to tell what group claimed responsibility than it is to tell whether the act was terrorist or not. So we know whether FARC did it, but whether it was organized crime or terrorism gets murkier. So we've been approaching the data in a number of ways so we can sort of sidestep this definitional issue. Not because it isn't important, but because I'm afraid that if we spend all of our time on the definitional issue, we probably never get much accomplished. So, and there are, you know, we can count hijackings, for example, pretty well. It's more difficult to tell whether they're terrorist hijackings or not. So 
There are, as usual with a social science problem of this type, there are ways in which you can get around the definitional issues. And in some ways, it's not much different than what we face in criminology with organized crime, hate crime, and so on. You have these same sorts of definitional problems. There are other kinds of major threats, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'll just, uh, this is actually to duck the criticisms that'll come in because you'll, I can at least say I'm aware of them. And the, you know, they're important challenges. Uh, definitional challenges. Uh, it's funny, the definitional challenges usually talk about the problem that everybody has a different definition. But as sociologists, you know that the other problem is how those definitions are applied. Uh, you know, just because the State Department uses the same definition doesn't mean that the people who are actually, you know, collecting the stuff apply it consistently. And we found, you know, these sort of humorous examples, and this is true of Pinkerton as well. You say, well, why didn't you count this incident? I mean, according to your definitions, this would seem to fit. Well, no, we never counted those. It just, you know. So they have their own sort of culture about what goes in and what doesn't. So even when you know what the law is supposed to be, uh, you don't necessarily know how it's actually being applied. You've got media inaccuracies, false reporting, false multiple no claims of responsibility, government censorship, conflicting information, and so on. Uh, you know, there are some problems with, uh, with this sort of method, of course. Um, so anyway, maybe we can have time at the end to talk more about this, but I want to get into the sort of main event and talk about a specific application that uh, we've been working on that comes out of these data. Uh, I'm working with uh, two colleagues, Laura Dugan at the University of Maryland and Alex Picaro at the University of Florida. The paper, uh, actually I found out yesterday that the paper I'm talking about today was just, uh, is about to be published in criminology, it was just accepted. And uh, what we tried to do in this paper is take a rational choice perspective, uh, one that had been, has been popular in criminology, and apply it specifically to understanding aerial hijackings. And we're specifically interested in trying to test some specific policy interventions. The definition of hijacking that we're using, uh, the one that uh, actually we got this from the FAA definition because we also supplemented our data with FAA data for this project, is the diversion or attempted diversion of an aircraft from scheduled flight plans through force or threat of force. And uh, there's been a lot of work with the rational choice theory in criminology and, of course, other fields as well. But in criminology, it's been applied especially to understand criminal behavior like drunk driving, burglary, robbery, income tax evasion, and drug selling. And at first blush, it seems to make some sense to apply a rational choice perspective to terrorism and to hijacking in particular because there's quite a bit of evidence that a lot of them are either carefully planned or at least they involve some consideration of risks and rewards. Uh, in order to get to the data, I'm going to go pretty rapidly through the literature. I'll try to sort of cut to the chase, uh, in a sense, in the literature. And uh, there's just a few points I want to highlight from this literature. First, while there's some descriptive information available on overall trends in hijacking, we know much less about how the motives for hijacking have changed over time. And I'm going to actually end with this as a problem with a lot of the research in this area as well, but I think it's a fair assessment of the literature to this point. Secondly, much of the research does not use formal statistical tests to determine if deterrence measures are significantly having an impact, in this case significantly reducing hijacking. And so one of our goals was to try to use our database to apply some specific statistical tests. Third, most studies have focused on the cost component of rational choice. We only found the major study that, that's an exception to this that focuses also on benefits is a Holden study that was published in the American Journal of Sociology in 1986. Uh, although this, this uh, study was limited to the period 1968 to 1972, so it's becoming pretty dated. And finally, past efforts have not examined the variables that are associated with hijacking success. The way the uh, FAA, uh, the FAA data actually include a definition of success that we have applied, and it allows us to sort of, in a way, take the perspective of terrorists planning an event and look at, over time, what sorts of characteristics predict a successful hijacking. And actually, uh, one of the interesting things coming out of our center is you know, when you're working on a paper that predicts successful hijacking, you start to wonder, should this be something to go on the World Wide Web, um, which we actually have not resolved yet. It is going to go in the journal of criminology in any event. Um, in terms of the basic uh, methodology we're, we're using, we're looking at 
the probability of success uh, based on a whole variety of uh, independent variables, basically. And I just leave the, uh, the essential rational choice assumptions here that if there's a re particular relationship between success and benefits, criminal activity is more likely to occur. And if the reverse happens, it's less likely to occur. Of course, you have to define success. And defining success is a bit like defining terrorism. There's not a huge amount of agreement. And to be honest, we were pretty much stuck with the FAA definition, which is where we got a chunk of these data from. The FAA defines success as the hijacker successfully takes over the plane and reaches his or her destination, whether by landing or by a parachute escape, and is not immediately arrested or killed on landing. And uh, we'll come back to this in a little bit. You, you've probably already seen this is a bit of a problem if you think of the 911 uh, incidents, for example, where uh, it would be hard to argue they weren't successful from the terrorist point of view, but at the same time, the uh, perpetrators were killed, which changed the whole uh, hijacking uh, uh, template, I think. Okay, in terms of hypothesis, we came up with five that we wanted to apply specifically. The first one's on success, and it's simply the hazard of a new hijacking attempt drops when the certainty of apprehension is increased. This is based on a very fundamental rational choice prediction that the chances of additional prohibited behavior will decline when perpetrators can be expected to believe that the likelihood of success has lessened. Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, we're actually going to be able to do as well some work to see if the hijackers are essentially right in their predictions about success because we're going to do our own analysis to see what's successful and what is less successful. We have three hypotheses that deal with benefits. The first is the hazard of new hijackings increases following two attempts that are closely spaced in time. This came from uh, Holden's work in 1986. He essentially argues that hijackings are con can be contagious, and we're predicting that the incentives of hijackings may increase when prospective hijackers witness hijacking attempts of others. So in other words, people are committing hijackings. This gets into the media. It's widely seen, widely publicized, and it's likely to result in more hijackings. Uh, hypothesis 2B is a sort of variation of this, and it says instead that the hazard of new hijackings increases after a series of successful hijackings. So in other words, this says what's important is not hijacking attempt, but successful hijackings. And so we wanted to specifically uh, sort of drill down in terms of Holden's original um, work and say, is it just the fact that there are more hijackings going on, or is it only successful hijackings that will lead to this contagion effect? Or is it the case that neither one of these are actually going to be that important? And the third benefits hypothesis, compared to those who hijack for other reasons, hijacking attempts by terrorists will be less affected by counterterrorism measures that raise the severity or certainty of punishment. This last hypothesis in part two is based on the observation that terrorist-motivated hijackings may not follow the same sort of risk-reward calculus that has been typical of criminology in other fields. It's not, uh, we're not arguing really that we expect terrorists to not be rational, that they're avoiding deliberation. In fact, I think the evidence suggests quite the opposite. A lot of research on terrorism suggests that a lot of it's pretty carefully planned and pretty deliberate. But what we're arguing instead is that advancing group goals may be of paramount concern and may be very different than what you get if you're trying to advance individual goals. Uh, you know, the prime example here is probably the suicide bomber, in fact. Now, we can't directly measure differential motivation with these data, the motivation for terrorists to hijack an aircraft. But with this hypothesis, we can hypothesize that compared to those who hijack for other reasons, like for monetary gain or for transportation to another country, and in the world this has been especially Cuba, the terrorist hijackers will be less affected by traditional measures that increase the certainty and severity of individual punishment. In other words, there's a difference in the risk calculus when we get to terrorism. And finally, we have one hypothesis about cost, that the hazard of a new hijacking attempt will drop after harsher punishments are announced. And this is based directly on the deterrence rational choice expectation that sanction severity will reduce criminal activity. How much time do I have altogether? Oh, okay, good. Oh, I'm not bad then.
They're probably, yeah. Low blood sugar will be taking people out by that. I'll try to get, get it snappy. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, I'll try. I'd like to have time for some questions as well. Okay. Well, let's move on to the data. Uh, we were able to collect uh, data on 1,101 global aerial hijackings from 1931 to 2003. Uh, 285 of these originated from U.S. airports and 816 originated from non-U.S. airports. Much of the data from this period are pretty well covered by the FAA, um, and they actually have very detailed data up to especially 1985. It's sort of interesting. The FAA from 85 on made data less and less available. After 911, all of the websites you know disappeared overnight. Uh, but we were able to use the original FAA data reports that were published through 1999, and then we collected event data from 2000 to 2003 from an uh, aviation safety website. And then we supplemented the resulting FAA data uh, base with additional cases that we had in our own data set. And we also went through the RAND MIP database and looked for additional cases as well. Uh, we ended up with 828 cases that range from 1947 to 1985. And these are especially interesting because they have narratives attached to them so, and they're quite complete. And, it, and they also include whether the event was successful using the definition of success that I mentioned just a moment ago. In order to determine whether uh, an event was terrorist or not terrorist, we used our own database, basically, because so, our database includes terrorist events, so we used it to cross-reference and code terrorism. And for purposes of our study, we used the Pinkerton um, definition of terrorism, which is the threatened or actual use of illegal force and violence to attain a political, economic, religious, or social goal through fear, coercion, or intimidation. The resulting composite database includes information on all known aerial hijackings from 1931 to 2003, and it also includes more detailed information on hijackers, including their affiliation and their main purpose uh, from 1931 to 1985. And uh, let's start out by looking at, well, here's the terrorism definition I just gave you. Let's look at the trends here. The solid line are trends in aerial hijacking for the United States. The dashed line are for the non-U.S. countries. Uh, we started in 1947 here. It turns out the databases had only one event in 1931 and then none until 1947. So we truncated that one case. And uh, essentially what you see here starting in the 40s is a, a little bit of activity. Almost There are a few years with zero in the 50s and one year in the six, well, two years in the 60s. And then a very sharp spike going from 67 to 75. And, you know, I, this is an aside, uh, Craig, but it, I, I don't know if you remember your data on riots. It's quite interesting. It, it corresponds very nicely with the riot data, doesn't it? Uh, you get the spike at almost exactly the same time. And everything drops out. Uh, and this happens here as well, particularly for the United States. There's a big dropout after that, somewhat of an increase here. And then a total elimination of aerial hijackings from 1991 until uh, there was actually one attempt at JFK, unsuccessful, in, I believe, uh, 2000. And after that, of course, this blip is uh, 911. You see also a pretty substantial drop-off in non-U.S. hijackings, but not as great. There's a, there's a, a sort of dispersion between non-U.S. hijackings and U.S. hijackings starting in the 1970s. So... So that's the basic pattern of the data we're looking at on approximately 1,100 cases. Now, of course, policymakers make our job difficult because they come up with this flurry of activities that make it very difficult to measure, you know, what in the world is going on. And this certainly fits here as well. You know, if you, if you go back to this, you know, you can see that this huge increase is causing a lot of pandemonium around the world, particularly in the United States. And so there was a very heavy response to try to do something about these aerial hijackings. We went through the policy literature, and we ended up identifying six policies that we thought were especially important in terms of either increasing the certainty or severity of punishment. The first one uh, on uh, October 1970, Cuba makes hijacking a crime. Before this point, people uh, hijacking airplanes principally from the United States. About two-thirds of the flights originated in the United States that ended up in Cuba. Uh, 
they were essentially welcomed by the Cubans, so there was no extradition treaty, no attempt to make, you know, to punish them, and so sort of no deterrent effect. And this changed dramatically in October 1970. Another important move in January of 1972, the FAA issued rules ordering tighter screening of all air passenger and baggage using one or more suggested methods. These are the one or more. Behavioral profile, magnetometer, identification check, or physical search. And uh, so starting in January 1972, we get essentially some concern, at least in the United States, with tighter screening. Um, and then in August 1972, the FAA mandated that airlines refuse to board any passengers who fit a hijacking behavioral profile before they were physically or electronically searched. And uh, in case I forget to mention this profiling one, uh, you notice I've circled the ones that we actually look at. We looked at this, we tested this, and the method we're using basically turns on a variable at the point when the policy starts and looks whether it has a significant effect on future uh, hijacking attacks. The problem with this one, though, is it's so bloody close to these. So we're not absolutely convinced that the fact that we didn't find an effect for profiling is real or whether it's just too close to these other uh, interventions to test. Our guess is it's, it didn't have an effect, but it's just a, an educated guess. And then there were three things that are truly too close for us to separate in time. In January, uh, January 5th, in fact, 1973, metal detectors were installed in U.S. airports. And although the times and dates differ substantially, similar devices were gradually introduced in most, most major airports around the world. Please. It was public, but it didn't get nearly as much attention as some other things. And this is one of the things, actually, we think is probably going on both with tighter screening and profiling. These tended to be much more visible to the public and tended to get more uh, publicity. Now, we did not do a systematic test of that publicity, however, so that's somewhat speculative. It could be. Yeah, it could well be. It could well be. Uh, so anyway, in terms of this last circle, the kind of uh, oval shape in 1973, this January 5th beginning of metal detectors, also February 3rd, the U.S. and Cuba signed a Swedish brokered agreement that defined hijacking as criminal in both nations and promised to either return hijackers or put them on trial. This was essentially a beefed-up version of what happened with Cuba back in uh, October of 1970. In some ways, it formalized what had already been happening, but there was some publicity attached to this as well. And finally, on February 5, 1973, the FAA required that local law enforcement officers be stationed at all passenger checkpoints during boarding periods. So we have a few advantages in terms of how these things break out. One, there is a bit of time to assess these three between them. Also, the Cuban one is an interesting one because it shouldn't affect flights outside of Cuba and uh, the United States because most of the Cuban flights originated in the United States. And also, uh, this one is interesting. You've got three of them you can't separate out very well, but they are uh, close enough in time that it seems reasonable to treat them uh, as, as similar or as happening at the same point in time. Okay, in terms of setting up our analysis, we basically, uh, for the most, or our main part of the analysis, we're going to rely on a Cox proportional hazard model which is essentially an attempt to estimate the hazard of a new hijacking attempt given a series of characteristics. And the characteristics we're looking at, we've got event characteristics um, like, for example, how long has it been since the last attack, was the last attack successful, and so on. And of course, we're very interested in assessing uh, whether policies have an impact on these events, a net of these event characteristics. And the policies we're going to look at are these three in particular. And then we also, uh, or treating for the dependent variable is the time until the next event. So in other words, if these policies slow down the time till the next event, uh, we'll pick it up as a significant impact in, uh, in either direction, or they might increase the time to the next event. Um, now I'll mention the other analysis that we used here. We're not, I'm not emphasizing this as much because it's not as closely related to the hypotheses, but it's something that I think adds a bit of additional information 
to the paper and ends up being somewhat interesting. We also did logistic regression models that estimate the probability of success. We basically use the same variables, event characteristics and policies. And this is more of standard logistic regression looking at, uh, at just whether these events were successful. Uh, and I should mention, in case I forget to mention it and you're interested in seeing the full paper, I'd be happy to send you out a copy uh, when I get back. Um, so this proportional hazard model then, here's the, or here's the formula we're using. We're basically looking uh, at uh, the time to the next event based on policies, based on the major purpose, and based on the context. In terms of the major purpose, I haven't talked about that yet, uh, we were able to divide the data up into essentially three main purposes. One, terrorism, uh, and we got the terrorism uh, designation from our global terrorism database. Secondly, uh, extortion, whether this, the main purpose of the hijacking was to extort money. And third, transportation to Cuba, whether the main purpose of the hijacking was uh, transportation to Cuba. So we're able to look at those three purposes and so on. So what we're going to be doing is estimating the coefficients associated with the hazard of a new hijacking attempt, which is estimated by the number of days until the next attempt, as a function of an unspecified baseline hazard function and then these three vectors, policies, major purpose, and context. Now, I probably totally confused you, so maybe a, a couple of, of, of more explanatory slides would help. The three policies we're looking at are the Cuban crime policy, the tighter screening policy, and metal detectors at all. So there's three policies that happen about the same time. We think after going through this research literature that metal detectors are likely the most important of these, but the truth is we can't really separate them out from the other two. Um, the major purposes we're looking at are terrorism, extortion, and transportation to Cuba. And the major contextual variables we're looking at is the last hijacking, uh, the, we have a variable called success density, which is basically uh, over the last, uh, the previous two hijackings, how long did they take and were they successful? And I'll show you how we estimate that in just a second. We look at whether it was a private flight or not. We look at whether it originated in the U.S. and we look at the year. And to give you an idea of, of the dependent variable and two of the principal independent variables, I've got this diagram. Our dependent variable is the days until the next attempt which we're able to measure pretty easily. Uh, one of our independent variables is how long it was since the last attempt. And one of our other independent variables we call success density. And we have experimented with a bunch of different ways of doing this. And this one is the one that seems to be the best. It's the probability of success for the current and the two previous attempts uh, divided by the event date of the current minus the event date of the second previous over 365. What we're trying to get at here is whether uh, successful events happening close in time are more likely to encourage a contagion effect. We've tried, uh, you know, using a longer range, you know, up to, we actually, I think, went all the way up to something like 15 previous attempts. We find this works reasonably well. Uh, I'll just, yeah, quick question. When you say probability of success, you know they were successful. Right, right. Yes, it's a known probability. No, that's right. Uh, I'll just, um, what I'm going to focus on, I, I'm not going to talk about a lot of the independent variables because we don't have that much time. Uh, be happy to send you the paper. What I want to focus on this talk is about the policy stuff. And I just presented the first page of the Cox proportional hazard models here. You can see, I mean, I've become a big fan of metal detectors after working on this. Um, like I say, we can't separate the metal detectors from the other parts of the policy that were enacted at a similar point in time, but the metal detectors got a lot more publicity. And you can see across the board a negative effect. Interestingly, the only one that isn't significant, though, is terrorism. In every other case, highly significant. Tighter screening, on the other hand, has almost no effect. The only uh, mildly significant effect is for non-US origin flights. The Cuban crime one, uh, just as you'd expect, has two effects, a negative on US origin uh, and as I say, most of these Cuban flights originated in the U.S. and also uh, a imp negative impact on Cuba cases. And to put this in a prettier fashion, this is what it looks like uh, graphically. Uh, if we look at Cuba policy in red, it basically has no impact on the total on U.S. origin, non-U.S. origin, uh, but it does have an impact on Cuba diverted and um, nothing on terrorism and nothing on non-terrorism. Uh, tighter screening has no impact except on non-U.S. origin 
And the 73 policies, which include the metal detectors, uh, has the biggest impact uh, on the total, on the US, on essentially everything but the terrorist cases. So there is a pretty significant effect um, of those 1973 policies. Sure. They were U.S., but they quickly spread to the rest of most of the rest of the world with varying degrees of comprehensiveness. They, no, not not systematically. I mean, what we know from the literature is that they spread for as you'd expect. They spread first to other highly industrialized Western nations. I mean, you could argue those of you who've been through airports around the world. I mean, there's tremendous variation to this day in how well those things are actually applied. But the idea, at least, in theory, is that they spread to all airports around the world, starting with the U.S. Okay, uh, I just want to take a little bit of a detour here and talk just a little bit about the other dependent variable. I'm not going to go into great detail on it, but just to, to give you an idea of what's going on. This figure shows uh, just successful uh, U.S. and non-U.S. hijackings from 46 to 85. And the lines, the vertical lines, show the three main policies we've been we're trying to look at here. You can see it looks pretty similar to the previous chart, which showed all hijackings. So you got relatively low rates uh, throughout the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. A big spike in successful hijackings from 67 to about 73, and again a big drop off after that, which is led by the U.S. The U.S. rates dropped off uh, quite a bit more than the world rates. And of course, as you remember from the previous table, uh, these drop off almost to zero because there are just are no uh, hijackings going on in the U.S. Uh, or very few after 1985. And what do we get? To, I just thought I'd show you a flavor of what the success stuff shows in terms of policy. It's sort of interesting. Uh, in terms of Cuba policy, we find a pretty significant effect across all of these categories, which is kind of interesting. And these are pretty big effects that the after the Cuba policy was enacted, there was a big decline in the success of all incidents, U.S. origin, non-U.S., Cuba. Again, notice the gap for terrorism, and also uh, non-terrorist cases. And also we find big effects, in fact, the single biggest effect, uh, the 1973 policies on U.S. origin and on Cuba diverted. And these are the um, metal detector cases. So there were measurable impacts of, of two of these three policies on the success rates of uh, future hijackings as well, or the hazards, or, or the, the success rates of future hijackings. Again, tighter screening uh, did not have an impact here. So let's see, let's move towards getting to some questions. Uh, in terms of the hypothesis I began with, a new hijacking attempt is less likely when the certainty of apprehension is increased. Uh, we say supported. Uh, certainly that's what the metal detector results show. Although we have to say at the same time, it was not supported with regard to tighter screening, just metal detectors. In terms of the three benefits hypotheses, the new hijackings are more likely to follow two attempts closely spaced in time, was not supported. It turns out, which makes some sense from a rational choice point of view, that it was only successful hijackings that had an impact. Successful hijackings did result in a sort of contagion effect, that when you had successful hijackings, you were likely to get more when you had just attempts and we didn't look at success ratios, uh, there was not a significant effect. And finally, the third part, compared to those who hijacked for other reasons, hijacking attempts by terrorists were less affected uh, by these policies than the other kinds of hijackings we looked at, uh, which was in keeping with our last hypothesis. Okay, uh, in terms of the hypothesis on cost, a new hijacking attempt will be less likely after harsher punishments are announced. We found support for this. We tested this uh, hypothesis by including the variable that indicates when it became a crime in Cuba to hijack a plane. And indeed, we found the hazard of hijacking decreased substantially after this policy was enacted. And uh, so we did find su support for this third hypothesis. In terms of main conclusions, I'd say there's three that I'd probably emphasize. First, new hijacking attempts were less likely to be undertaken when the certainty of apprehension or severity of punishment increased. This was essentially hypotheses one and three. Um, second, the rate of hijacking significantly increased following a series of successful hijackings. This is the sort of contagion effect, but it's a specific contagion effect related just to success. And three, counter hijacking policies had no impact 
on hijacking attempts whose main purpose was terrorism. Uh, let me talk just a little bit about some of the limitations of this research. Um, I mean, I, I'll, first I'll toot my horn just a little bit. I think we have assembled the largest, most comprehensive longitudinal database on hijackings, at least of which I'm aware of. Um, but the limitations are, are important, too. Like many early, uh, earlier macro-level tests of deterrence rational choice perspectives, we have no real clue on the perceptual dimension of what's going on. We don't know what the real motivations of the people involved in these data were. And, uh, I mean, this is a general problem, I think, in this area. It's very hard to get good data on the motivations of terrorists, including hijackers. Secondly, because most of the major anti-hijacking interventions happened very closely in time, it's difficult to separate out independent effects. And that's why we limited our analysis to these three interventions. And even with that, I can't absolutely rule out the idea that uh, the screening business wasn't, uh, was not important because it was so close in time to metal detectors. Third, although our database includes many of the variables shown by prior research to be associated with hijackings, it's certainly plausible that other variables that aren't available or that weren't available to us would have been useful. And I think this is especially the case regarding our measure of benefits specific to terrorist-related hijackings. Um, for example, a hijacking could draw attention to a terrorist group's political demands, uh, it, could in, it could increase its standing with its followers. It could increase its membership, even though the perpetrators were raided by the FAA as unsuccessful or even though they were killed. So we just don't have a very good handle on the rational calculus of terrorist-related hijackings at this point in time. And finally, because we relied on FAA data for a chunk of this analysis, we were limited to their definition of hijacking success. Uh, we played around with, I mean, we may try at some point to go back through the data and recode it using different definitions of success, but um, it's not going to happen fast, I'd say. It would take a lot of work to do that. So this limitation, I think, is especially important for the terrorist-related hijackings, again, because it's quite likely that uh, definitions of success are going to be different for terrorist-related hijackings than for the others. Okay, and uh, let me close with just a couple things. I want to talk a little bit about where we could go from here and a couple of final thoughts, and then maybe we'll have some time for questions. In terms of future research, I think uh, there are at least four directions I think we could go with this work. First, because aerial hijackings occur over space and time, we could do more to look at sources of variation. Uh, it's clearly the case that hijackings are not randomly distributed around the planet. Uh, the United States, you see, is actually a pretty good chunk of all hijackings, and certain cities in the United States are a big chunk of those, and certain airlines within cities within the United States are a pretty good chunk of those. We haven't done much with that, although we have data on that. Uh, some carriers are much more likely to be targeted than others. One of the things I can say to this audience, but I won't put on the web, and it's not in this presentation, but it's in the paper, you know, I say we looked at successful hijackings. One of the things that really popped out of that is private planes are a much better bet than public carriers. Uh, you're much more likely to be successful if you go with a private plane. I mean, common sense, but and here you get in this thing about, you know, to what extent are, are terrorists rational? Well, to some extent, you know, going after American airlines may have all sorts of symbolic uh, purpose as opposed to going after a private jet. But in terms of success, you are much more likely to be successful under the FAA definition by going after a private carrier. Second, I think we need to have a much better understanding of the motivation of terrorists. And I think, you know, this is a, an issue we're interested in at our center. It's a very difficult issue to study. Uh, we're working with a, a Turkish researcher right now who's connected to the Turkish police and has got this fascinating database where uh, they basically uh, were able to capture records collected from Dev Sol, one of the uh, left-wing terrorist groups in Turkey. And these guys gave, they were like sociologists, they gave surveys to all of their inductees. And it's great stuff. I mean, they got, you know, essentially, why did you join the organization? So it gets into some of these motivational issues. Uh, so far, I've only gotten access to sort of a sanitized version of this. We're trying to get the original Turkish version. But uh, more information like this, I think, 
is going to be very important, and, and frankly, we didn't have it in this study, although we're working on it. Uh, third, because much of our analysis was, was confined to the pre-1986 period, we really don't know much about the efficacy of more recent efforts to control aerial hijacking, sky marshals, reinforced cockpit doors, and the rest. And in fact, it's not clear that we can do much statistically to look at that because there just haven't been enough incidents to really uh, do much with statistically. And finally, as I've noted already, it will be useful to develop, I think, different conceptions and different operationalizations of success, particularly with the uh, cases of terrorist incidents. It's clear that, again, this analogy with criminology is somewhat useful in terms of getting us to think about terrorism like crime in a rational choice model, but it's also an imperfect analogy because clearly the, the rational calculus of a terrorist can be quite different than a street offender. Um, so essentially, traditionally, rational choice models in criminology, I think, have been useful for understanding individual offenders, but we need to go uh, well beyond those applications. Uh, and I wanted to just point out uh, a couple of directions that we're heading with this next and not so much from the hijacking point of view, but from a methodological point of view, we're finding this hazard model thing, which as far as I know, we're the first ones who've ever tried applying this technique uh, in this way, at least, uh, in a time series situation like this. And now, you know, we're like the kid with a hammer where everything needs pounding. Now we're seeing all these great other ways of applying it. And I just want to show you a couple of other papers that are in process where we're using the same methodology. This uh, shows a, a, a list of terrorism activity by Asala and by JCAG. These are two Armenian terrorist groups operating primarily in Turkey. And you can see that uh, the this chart starts in 75, and it kind of follows a kind of classic boom and bust cycle, particularly for, J, or for Asala, which is the, the larger of the two trends, uh, peaking in about 1981. Well. What we think is going on, with, and we're very interested in this, you know, why did this group decline so precipitously? What happened? Well, it turns out at almost exactly the high point of this group, they attacked the Orly Airport in Paris and killed a whole bunch of innocent people. We think that what happened as this incident precipitated a lot of, uh, a lot of uneasiness and aversion in the diaspora community that was supporting the group. So we can use this method to essentially turn on the attack on the Orly Airport and see if it's statistically significant, controlling for a variety of other factors. And in fact, when we've done that, it's highly significant. Uh, there's more to the story, but you can sort of see if you've got a longitudinal database with some event that you think is critical in terms of understanding future hazards of more attacks, this perhaps is a useful way to look at it. I'll just give you one other example in closing. We're working on a paper in Northern Ireland where we're taking all of the attacks by nationalists, which are the heavy line, and loyalists, the dash line, from 1969 to 1993. And we've slotted in here major British responses, essentially, uh, starting with the Falls curfew internment. Those of you who are, who are in this area will recognize uh, these. And what we've done is then use the same methodology to essentially turn on these policies at the appropriate time and to look at what impact they had on future uh, terrorist strikes. And, you know, this is one of the things where we go through all these fancy statistics and you could have gotten it all from the model. I mean, you can look at this and see that uh, through many of these British responses did not reduce future terrorist strikes. There were a couple that did, but for the most part, there was either no effect or even an increase following uh, these counterterrorism uh, strategies. Uh, so anyway, this is another way I think we're going to be able to use this methodology. If you've got time series data and you have some event that you can predict is likely to have an impact on the hazards of future strikes, I think it can be an, a useful model. The trouble we're running into, like with this one, we found uh, about six incidents that we thought were really substantively important. As with the other data, if you start getting these too crowded in time, it gets very complex to sort out statistically. You don't have enough degrees of freedom. But it works well, like in the previous case, where we essentially had this one big incident, and we're interested, like you would be in an interrupted time series model, in knowing whether that incident had a big impact, controlling for everything else you could control for. So we're hoping that this is going to uh, be a methodology we can use in a variety of other projects going on at the center. 
So I will leave it at that and be happy to take any questions. Well, um, <laughs> I, I'll start. Whatever. Can you talk a little more about the, uh, your, your, your null case of what's the purpose of the terrorism? What, what do you do with that as a research problem? Because obviously they're driven by a different agenda, so to speak. So uh, some of the other people look like they're looking for a quick trip to Cuba. Right. Well, I mean, I think in this particular thing, we're doing it very indirectly. And, you know, the, I, I think it's interesting that we, we are finding that the terrorist cases seem to be different than these others. Um, in fact, you know, like the, the people who are motivated for money seem to be like, common, like a common criminal response where you're getting like sort of classic deterrent effect. Likewise, the Cuba extortion group were pretty easy to control. And, I don't want to make too much of this. It turns out the terrorist case was close to being significant for the metal detectors thing. And so, but it wasn't, you know. So, you know, uh, it does look like they do behave differently, that there is a different rational calculus. And frankly, we're just beginning to explore that. We've got, uh, we're doing um, some work right now in, like, uh, in the Middle East and in, um, in Uzbekistan, and also some stuff using internet websites where we're trying to get closer to motivation. But, you know, I think these kind of data probably are just not too helpful for that. We're trying to simulate motivation by looking at these different purposes and what happens to hazards, but it's very inexact. So, did that answer your? Yeah. Okay. Uh huh. Right. Get on a plane with metal objects and, uh, and so on. Do we know much about uh, what weapons are used by terrorists versus non-terrorists? That's a good question that we eventually could address because we have weapons in these databases. We haven't looked at it. Uh, I think you're exactly right that it looks like they're in a sense taking it more seriously. I mean, the fact that it hasn't had an impact means they're presumably getting around it. Mm -hmm. So that would be a good hypothesis. I don't know the answer to that. Right. Well, Todd Sandler, I don't know if those of you are in this area, he, he argues for a displacement effect, too. He argues that, you know, be careful what you, you know, what sorts of uh, policies you put because you may get, particularly with the case of terrorism, you just may move them to another area. We couldn't really look at that. In this case, we're just looking at aerial hijackings. I'm actually not all that convinced yet. I've been looking at his stuff. I mean, I think it's well done, certainly, and he's made a good case, and so it depends on us to disprove it. But he's got his proof for that involves looking at two separate longitudinal time series, which are not linked. So whether or not you can make that leap, you know, I guess it's our burden to disprove it at this stage, because I think he does a good job of making the argument. It's certainly something to look for. We know in criminology, though, that. Displacement, I think, is, is overrated, that there's quite a bit of information suggesting that displacement doesn't happen that much. Um, terrorism might be different, though, because you've got more rational individuals involved. I mean, we got into this. I sometimes get a question on this paper, like, why didn't you control for a number of airports? And we asked a whole bunch of people about this, you know, in terms of the dependent variable or somewhere in the analysis. But, you know, we started thinking, I mean, is someone really going to be deterred if they have to move from Columbus to Cincinnati, for example, to hijack a plane? And he said, they're so ubiquitous during this period that it's probably not going to have much impact. But that ubiquity might depend on your motive. I mean, presumably a terrorist-motivated person might go a lot farther to get over the hurdles than someone who's trying to extort money. So we just don't know much about that yet. Yeah? A couple of points. Uh, first, terrorism is Symbolic, something symbolic happens in, in a little polity, and then they react and hide 
Well, you know, I won't flip back to it, but you remember the graph, though. I guess you could make that argument. Um, if you look at the graph on the, the data, though, I'm not sure where I have it here. Yeah, there it is. Um, maybe so. I, it's worth thinking about. You do get this pretty, it's not sort of like an EEG, you know, that's jumping up and down all over the place. You get a pretty much of a boom and a bust cycle. Um, but there may be something to that. And the trouble is, of course, when you get to the just the terrorism events, you've got many, many fewer cases. I can't remember exactly how many there are in here, but not that many, though. The second point is, put up the Irish graph that you showed there. Oops, there it goes. I don't see that so much as a failure as I see it as a, an armed race. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the British are responding. Uh, there's immediate backlash for that response. But eventually it works. There's a lag, and then there's a decline until the terrorist organizations figure out how to overcome it. And then the, the, it seems like there's always a small uptick after whatever the intervention is. I need to get your card. I'll send you a draft of this paper. Um, I mean, I, I'd be I'm open to that. All right, yeah. Um, it could be. I mean, we've. Exp I mean, if that were the case, though, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you still expect when you turn these particular policies on that you'd get a declining hazard rate? Not if the terrorist organization makes a point of increasing their activities mm -hmm. to, to punish what you've done. Uh -huh. And I think that that's well. That could be. Now, I would not rule that out. I mean, that's you know, that's exactly. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the middle managers probably are going to ratchet up their activity to prove right. it's not going to affect us. Well, that could well be. I would not, you know, that's sort of Braithwaite's take on this stuff, basically. The sort of, um, that, you know, you can make things worse by, you know, the kind of classic criminology argument as well. But it's a bright front because eventually, if the intervention is effective, it will show. Right. After the internment's there, you can see eventually. And you know, I think, I think the internment was the, was as, and in fact, I think the internment is the one that does work from a deterrence point of view. That's right. And that's what we see with Al Qaeda too. We've mm -hmm. taken out all the people who planned 9/11. Right. Osama, he just funded it basically. Uh, and there has been a decline, at least here. Right. In terms of terrorism, and you know they're trying to come back, but I get the sense from what I've read that it's uh, not as coordinated as it once was. Right. So taking out the central management seems to have had some effect. Yes. Now that I understand your question, I. I agree, but totally. Yeah, people are already talking about second generation Al Qaeda. Uh, it is an arms race. It's gone they look like it's become more of somewhat of a coherent mm -hmm. It's sort of a franchise operation, and now even more, less of less consistency there, and more sort of a, a movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Very much. And that's actually maybe the worst case scenario because it's morphed a great deal, it appears. Uh, yes, please. Well, you know, I think part of the reason, uh, well, those of you in the room too too young to remember this, a lot of them were Black Panthers, actually. I think that may explain why the... Yes, well, think about it. There's subnational political agenda, threat of violence, or, yeah. And it's theater. And there's a debate about this, and they were definitely hijacking, but yes. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them, you know, I, I didn't point this out. I probably should, that we allowed a single case to be classified for multiple purposes, and there was some of that. There were some of the Panther hijackings were both extortion. In fact, they were all three. They were extortion, they were transportation to Cuba, and they were terrorism. Yeah. And that was relatively uncommon, but there were some. Yeah, that's right. Uh, sure.
This is a real good question, and actually much more complicated than I let on. The FAA, like, I don't know, some of you know Ariel Marari, who's got a really huge uh, hijacking database, much bigger than this, and uh, he sort of publicly said, upbraided us for having a subset of all of them. The reason his is so big is he includes anyone who gets into an airport. So if, the, if there's a gun battle in front of a ticket window, he counts it as an aerial hijacking, or at least as an attack on the aviation industry. The FAA didn't. Where they seem to cut it off is if the person gets, you know, at least gets into the loading area, they count it as a hijack. If they get thwarted at the loading area, and I think there's even a jurisdictional thing with the FBI there, that that's when the FBI takes over as, as opposed to the sort of local police. They are very closely related. They, well, they don't count anything, attempted or non-attempted, if it doesn't get into the, load, the staging area in the airport. If it gets into the staging area of the airport, an attempt would be, for example, someone who's going up the bridge and gets wrestled to the ground, or someone who even gets into the cockpit and gets wrestled to the ground as an attempt rather than a completed. This is sort of like, I can't remember who raised the question about maybe we should be taking into account major political. We did not. Uh, in fact, you know, when you think about it, unless you have a pretty large number of cases, it's hard to imagine how you could use these data to do much with that. Unless it's something that sort of had a worldwide impact that would be picked up by... The, the chart? Sure. Well, no. My question is, um, how do you explain the time? I have a couple of possible answers. That is, number one was, uh, of course, uh, like the water security. Mm -hmm. But the availability of Americans on the ground in Iraq, mm -hmm. that actually draw lots of terrorists or volunteers over there. Mm -hmm. This is, of course, something that the, that the UK is quite interested in right now, that I mean, returning jihadists, basically. Americans are available, mm -hmm. so many of them. Right. Well, you know, you're, you actually have a much more sophisticated version than we do, and it's hard to, you know, I, you can only push these data so much, but, you know, it's clear from 91 on, I mean, this was an aberration because the rules of engagement changed dramatically. You got people willing to give their own lives. Without that, though, the, the system was working pretty darn well. There were, there were no, no reported attacks. And this has continued post-911 as well. So, but you know, with that level, it's almost a case study approach, I think, more than a statistical one at that level. So, um, sure. It would be, yeah. Yeah, you know, we can, we have that data actually. 
That's actually quite a good idea. So it's sort of safety valve theory. Well, diversion. Diversion. What you do call diversion. Right. It's interesting to put the aerial hijacking in the context of total attacks somehow. Yeah. Well, we could do that. We have. So that you could see if these patterns, well, and even in your conversation with Ed, whether the terror group is actually deterred by internment. Yes. Or whether they're simply diverted to other kind of attacks. Right. Because this flat line here is clearly misleading. Mm-hmm. No, it's just very misleading. You know, in fact, that's that's something we could look at. I didn't bring it with me, but I I think that's right. There probably is an increase in other kinds of terrorism with U.S. targets. Non-U.S. are not targeting U.S. citizens. It's just where it occurs. That's right. That's right. Um, Let's see. Did we? um, So yeah. So non-U.S. Yeah, that's possible. Right. Non-U.S. carriers that took off non-U.S. soil. Yeah, yeah, we could look at that. It would be a little, and we have to go back and recode it. But that would be interesting. Yeah, my pleasure. Very interesting. Thank you. Very much. Thank you.